Welcome to the Becoming Educated podcast. I'm Darren Leslie, and I'm a teacher. The mission of Becoming Educated is threefold. To inform, giving teachers the robust academic basis to really meaningfully interrogate practice. To challenge accepted thinking, dangerous assumptions, and the dead wood entire professional dialogue. And ultimately, to inspire and allow passionate professionals to trust in themselves and teach with joy. So in this podcast, I am joined by an English teacher, the host of the TESS English Teaching Podcast, and also a writer for for TESS, both in uh, England and in Scotland, and the author of a really wonderful book, Slow Teaching, Jamie Tom. Uh, Jamie, thank you very much for, for joining me today. A pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's very kind of you. No, not a problem. As I, as I said to you before we came on, your your, your work is really resonate with resonating with me, and, and I really wanted to to chat to you about it and obviously share that with with a wider audience. Um, so just to just to kick off, um, I referenced your book Slow Teaching, which was your your first publication. Um, could you could you share with us what motivated you to write that book? Sure. Um, basically, what happened was I, I had a fairly sort of rapid uh, start to my um, teaching career. I taught in central London and I got kind of promoted to an assistant head teacher in my uh, my second year of teaching. Um, and I kind of, uh, I gave it a good go, but obviously I was utterly terrible uh, and just a general all round disaster when it came to managing uh, anything, including sort of myself. Um, so I lasted, a, I lasted a few years in that role and then I kind of spectacularly uh, burnt myself out. Um, and you know, and I sort of crawled through. I, I kind of moved schools and I moved to the northeast. I was obviously working my way further back up to Scotland, but I was teaching in Newcastle for a while. Um, and I just, I just found it really difficult. And I found kind of um, even after sort of experience and burnout, the, the sort of the the, um, the kind of consequences of that ran on, I guess. And I, I struggled. Um, and and part of the reason for setting up a blog and and writing a book was a it was a completely selfish sort of cathartic process where I wanted to, I think, rediscover a little bit of, of love for teaching and education. I also think about how we can make this, uh, you know, a wonderful career or a really difficult career um, that bit more sustainable, really, um, and, and, you know, help teachers to um, last in the profession. Because I think I was sort of on my last legs. I was thinking, I don't know if I can... Um, if I can do this job that I love so much. Um, so the book was, yeah, the book, as I say, was a little bit of a manifesto for looking at, well, what happens if we don't feel the need to, to move 100 miles an hour every single day? You know, what happens if we can be a little bit more um, slow and refined and reflective in our, in our work in education? Absolutely. Um, I think earlier on in the book, um, you kind of summarise this in, in your tortoise and a hair analogy. Um could you, could you share how you came to that and how that reflects teaching in, in today teaching today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think you know the the whole tortoise and the hare analogy is the, obviously the the famous fable about the the sort of slow plucky hare. It's not the other way around. The slow plucky tortoise, you know, beating the beating the hare at a race. And I think quite often, particularly in the in the first you know certainly the first five years of teaching. You can feel that you are just that here. You're sprinting through everything. You're juggling everything. You're trying to find a way to, um, 
you know, do the best for your pupils, but just generally feeling overwhelmed by it. And what my sort of theory was that if if we did take the time to slow ourselves as teachers and kind of get out of that myopic vision, tunnel vision that we often find ourselves in, which is the natural consequence of stress, then we can start to look at teaching in a more sustainable and long-term um, process. So planning for things strategically rather than just being more reactive in situations. Um, and I think ultimately what that, what happens if you try and embrace that philosophy, and which I've tried and I still feel, you know, all the time, but I do try to stick by it to, to look long-term rather than short-term, um, is the job becomes that bit more manageable and we can kind of, um, I think ultimately as well do better for, for young people. Absolutely. I think uh, there is a lot of, of teaching. I think thinking about my own practice as well. There's a lot of times I come in and, and it, I'm planning lessons day by day rather than having a an overview. And I think there definitely mm-hmm. is a, a, a kind of a, a, a call to arms, if you like, for having a, a more overview so you can then take your time in, in, in your lessons and your practice. And one of the things that really has, has impacted me from your book is... In part two of your book, you talk about about teacher voice uh, and the use of praise. Um, could you speak to the idea of of slowing down with your teacher talk and how that um, uh, impacts on on learning in your classroom? Hmm. Um, I think it's it's a really interesting one when I when I sort of took this whole concept and tried to apply it to as much as possible and sort of classroom pedagogy that the way we use our, our voices and the way we talk as practitioners is, is so vital and important. You know, we're on stage more than anybody else. We're on stage for six hours a day. Um, and I think there's a bit, you know, teaching sometimes overcomplicates. We overcomplicate teaching. But ultimately, one of the most important things is how we communicate and how we use language and even the tone and the way we use our, our voices in the classroom. And what, what I've found gradually is I've, I've kind of developed in the classroom is the, the, is the slower, really, well, to a certain degree, but the slow, when we slow down in our communication, you sort of watch young people hone in and, and listen more to what we are saying ultimately, which is, you know, one of our major goals as educators. We're trying to get them to listen properly, sincerely and attentively. And I think ultimately... And um, when we do that and practice with it and sort of don't become afraid of, of silence in the classroom either, just that, you know, that moment of pause where you let everybody process what we're saying. And that can run through all the times in terms of questioning. Again, when we slow down questioning slightly, when we give space for thinking, when we just try to not rush through content so much, excuse me, I think that can have a real positive impact in sort of focus in engagement, in lessons. And also, you know, because young people have to listen to so much, I think when we do slow it down slightly, they realise that what we are saying is something of importance, I would say. No, absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I think for, for myself and, and my own practice reading your book, I've tried really hard and to think, being I'm Scottish and from the northeast, I tend to talk really fast and get really excited, and and, and, and I obviously have love my subject. Yeah, yeah. But, but I've tried really hard to to since since reading your book to try and slow down and and slow down with my teaching. And as you said there, that that bit of quiet, um, 
especially from when you're asking questions, not be a, be afraid of the afraid of the silence, like you, like you said there. And um, moving a little bit on is that one of the key struggles for for teachers of all ages, not just younger teachers, is managing learner behaviour. Um, and you touch on this in, in your relationships chapter and discuss, discuss a stoical behaviour management. And, that, and that's very interesting in terms of, can I, I read that and I thought, well, what is that? What, is, what does that mean? Could you, could you elaborate on, on how, much, how much relationships really do matter and, and what do you mean by a, by a stoical behaviour management strategy? Mm. Uh, good question. Uh, well, I, Dan, to be honest, I'm a bit of a boffin. I do like my kind of philosophy. So uh, the stoical philosophy is kind of, you know, based on things like Marcus Aurelius and the famous kind of Seneca and all these wonderful uh, stoical philosophers. And the whole principle is that we ultimately are the only people who can manage ourselves and our own behaviour. You know, you're the kind of, I guess, the, uh, the, the master of your own emotions and your own capacity to govern and control yourself. I think what I find interesting is obviously in, in the classroom itself, so much is um, unpredictable. You know, we, we can't really ultimately manage the emotional responses of, of young people. And they are so capricious, they're up and down, depending on, you know, if it's Friday period six or if it's Monday period one, it's really difficult to, to manage that in itself. But as teachers, all we can do really is control the things that we can manage ourselves. So what we do have control of is we have control of our ability to present a kind of calm and consistent, leveled um, manner in the classroom. And we do have control over the environment itself. You know, things like the seating plans, things like how we engage with young people and how we talk to them on an individual level, how we get ourselves down to their, their levels and communicate with them as, as human beings, you know. Um, and, and I guess as well that sense of it's one of the most, um, I certainly found it today in a Monday in January, but it's one of the most challenging things, you know, presenting our enthusiasm and our passion and our love for our subjects is what we have control over. And if we can do that, then I think obviously those relationships become so much more reciprocal because what young people really want is they want to be in the hands of someone who cares about them and cares about the the subject. Um, so yeah, the historical philosophy, it was a, it was a bit, uh, as I say, boffin but it's more the concept that as behaviour management goes in the classroom, it's, it is a really emotional, emotional thing. And what we have to try and manage is, is to present a certain um, composure in ourselves and how we manage young people in that way, if that makes sense. <laughs> it certainly does. I think that, that idea that we can control um, our own behaviour, and I like what you said there about we, even in, in a Monday in January, if we can go in and, and control our, our enthusiasm, our, our passion for our subject, and obviously our, our, our uh, passion and care for the young people, I think that will, that I think they, they respond to that, and, and it certainly is, I think, something that, for myself, as a, I'm quite a live. I think I'm a. I think I'm a lively PE teacher, and that kind of brings out brings out the best in young people. And I think for anyone in any classroom, if you can go in and you can manage yourself and how you respond to situations, it can it can help. Um, kind of going further with that, you discuss the power of modelling in the classroom quite a bit. 
Um, could you tell me how it impacts on, on yours and other classrooms, the, the idea of, of modeling? Mm -hmm. um, one of my sort of aims for the book as well was to sort of wade through some of the, um, I think some of the fads and some of the gimmicks that uh, were certainly the, the sort of hallmarks of my own training, um, you know, sort of 10 years ago now. Um, and I think what, what I wanted to do was just simplify the process of what's going to be most helpful in making learning clear for young people. And I think modelling is, you know, such a powerful way to make what would be sort of implicit for young people, unclear, muddled, um, difficulties to really get hold of for them as clear as, as possible. And for me as an English teacher, it's really, really simple. You know, it's a case of I write as much as possible in lessons, I handwrite on the board, I write models in terms of paragraphs, in terms of showing them, um, you know, pre-prepared pieces of writing. Uh, but it's obviously applicable for all subjects. Um, but I think ultimately what is really important is um, slowing down ironically with the use of the models. Because quite often what I tended to do was just sort of flash up in sort of uh, Blue Peter style, you know, something I prepared earlier, give them about 30 seconds to look at it, intimidate them rather than give them confidence and then move on with the lesson. But really what it needs is, is careful time and unpicking of models you know, like, and even in PE, you know, I've seen PE teachers do it wonderfully with, like, even just talking, you know, kind of football models or sort of dissecting, you know, Ronaldo's wonderful skills in, in lots and lots of detail so that young people can, can really get a sense of what it is we want to give them the confidence to, um, you know, find in their own work. Um, so I think it's, and it's in all, in all aspects, it's modelling in, you know, modelling in terms of language, modelling in terms of our behaviours in the classroom. I think it's, it's a real core part of effective teaching, effective slow teaching. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like how you, you brought in the, the slow idea of giving them, giving them time to to dissect the the mod. If you if you give them a piece of writing, time time to dissect the the model and the idea. There are there is some research that says if you give children the, the I show them what best practice looks like, they and they give them tight opportunity to look at it. They will then recognise that and and attain kind of reach that level if you like. So definitely, and definitely mm. something that really kind of resonates with with effective learning and teaching. Um, I really enjoyed uh, your chapter in so teaching on memory mysteries. Um, could you share what mysteries and strategies you, you discuss in the book with us, please? Absolutely. Um, I think kind of memory is another gloriously underexplored aspect of of learning and teaching. You know, it's it's absolutely ingrained in everything we are doing, particularly, you know, as, as secondary practitioners, what we are trying to do is get young people to hold on and retain information. And again, to go back to my training, I've got training on kind of everything from, you know, sort of Bloom's taxonomy, taxonomy, I can't even say it, Bloom's taxonomy to, you know, how to make sure lessons are as engaging as possible, but it didn't go into the depth of, well, what is learning ultimately and what is it that's going to, help young people retain and recall information. And um, so, I mean, there's some brilliant, brilliant books out there. Petra Trey's Memorable Teaching was a massive one that had a big impact on me in terms of 
um, you know, improving my understanding of what you know short-term memory is, long-term memory is, and how we can you know recall information. But in terms of practical things, I've, I've done and do now since um, writing the book. I think so. Low-stakes testing, and um, so starting off lessons with kind of five key questions from the previous lesson that I want them to retain and recall, and I guess interspersing the curriculum a little bit more. So I might all of a sudden just do a little bit of a, call it a Shakespeare special, where we'll have 10 questions on a Shakespeare topic we studied kind of two months ago. Because ironically, what we do is we tend to do learning in very kind of procedural schemes. So we'll teach a scheme of work, then we'll not come back to it for kind of eight months, and then we have to sit and examine it. So it's looking instead about kind of interspersing, you know, schemes of work so that young people are kind of coming back to them and having to work in retaining that knowledge. And even just talking to young people themselves about things like revision, because they don't have, they're not really um, in lots of schools provided with the exact nature of how to revise. So the more they know about their memories and how that they would need to do you know, active revision, be actively taking part in what they're doing rather than sort of vacantly staring at sheets of notes, and um, the more helpful that becomes for them as well. So it's all just to think about making things that are hazy and unclear, both for us as educators, but for young people as clear as possible. You know, and even just dissecting with them, what is learning? What is memory? And how do we go about strengthening our memories so that they understand how they have to work themselves in the, in the classroom environment? Mm -hmm. No, thank you. It's, it's very interesting. You see that I've just recently been reading a little bit about the, the strategy of interleaving, and you alluded to it there with kind of uh, historically we've done things in blocks whereas we're now starting to understand mm. that if you if you revisit them and you you've moved on but if you go back to them, like you said about your your Shakespeare 10 and your yeah if you taught it two months ago going back to it I find that very interesting and definitely something that 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 we could learn a lot more about and how to put that into, mm, our, definitely. into our practice um Thinking about the, the strategies we've discussed so far, what strategies have you used that you've obviously used them all if you've, if you've written about them and researched them, but what have you used most from your book and what has had the biggest impact on your own teaching practice? Ooh, um, okay, that's a difficult question. Um, I think for me, um, if I can answer that in a little bit of a wooly way, um, one of the things that I, I did with the book is is really develop an understanding of kind of anxiety and of stress and how to kind of manage that better as a as a teacher because I think we we have you know, we we can be biased here uh, and my wife is an economist can't hear so I can be biased I can say that we have the, you know one of the most stressful professions there is um, and quite often we we find ourselves as, as teachers on autopilot you know we just we just crap on through and we just work, work, work until we get to the next holiday. And we're not working in a, in a school environment. Um, I think a lot of teachers are running through in their heads the day at school, and they're running through you know, all, the, all the things they have to do in that endless to-do list. Um, and as I say, my mission was to try and make teaching a job that you can last in and sustain in. And a lot of the things that have had the most impact on me are just knowing now when to cut off, I think, 
and when to not fall into that perfectionist trap of, well, I could spend an hour this evening marking, I could I could spend another bit of time, you know, planning. You know, and and, and, I, and I guess it is, it's 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 such an important conversation we need to have as teachers. How can we look after ourselves a little bit better and not fall into that trap that we are kind of slaves to young people? Although, you know, although I'm, like any teacher, I'm massively passionate about the young people I teach and what I do, but I think we need to be able to say, right, enough's enough. And for me, that's been things like, you know, just um, not checking emails in the evening, simple things like that, or, um, you know, writing, the process of writing, or even, you know, kind of talk a little bit about, you know, meditation things, mindfulness things that can help to leave the leave the school day behind. So, um, so sorry, it's a bit of a cover because I know it's not an explicit strategy, but I think one of the most important things we can do as teachers is, is have the confidence to say no and to prioritise our own health and wellbeing. It's it's a kind of it's like giving yourself permission, isn't it, to 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 just go home and, yeah, definitely. and be present with your own family because kind of leading up to my next question you finish your book discussing well-being and you kind of alluded to some of the things you wrote in your book in terms of, of well-being uh, just there but what are your views on, on teacher well-being and how to maintain it kind of how do we give ourselves that permission just to just to leave the school gates and, and then be present with our own family and still have energy for them mm. Um, yeah, I think you know. I think perspective is a is a really easy thing to talk about, but it's harder to do in to do in practice. Um, but yeah, I think for for anybody in any job, you've got to have something outside of teaching to to function as a human being. You know, it's, it's kind of thinking of ourselves in all these different parts, isn't it? I suppose, uh, and teaching is going to be a big part, but. There needs to be other things outside of um, the classroom and outside of teaching that can help switch that off. I think you know, since I've had I've got a wee boy now who's two, and then that certainly does the job because you you have to go. You do obviously inevitably you come home and you've got a screaming child, so that that's been a massive help. But I think it's you know, just recognizing that you are a human being, you know, first and foremost. And that you can only do so much. And what, it's like we said earlier, I think what young people need in the classroom is energy and enthusiasm. And if you're working yourself to the, you know, to the bottom in terms of trying to do everything, you can't in a lesson present that energy and that passion and that enthusiasm. And so I think it's prioritizing that and even just sleep, you know, kind of, I think as teachers, we have this, uh, again, that kind of mentality, oh, I, don't, I don't need to sleep, I need to mark books. Whereas um, making sure they're given the space to have, have that time, and as, as I say, to cut off an hour before and just rest and, and relax. Um, and I think that you know to continue the sort of slow philosophy, um, it's that principle. It's as a person, you know, as a human being, being able to slow ourselves down and see that we are stressed and anxious, and take the steps, whatever they might be for you as an individual. That will help you to feel better about what what you're doing, and it's it's a massively unique thing and a unique process, because well-being for me, which is which is partly like running all the time, you know, running uh, sort of 40, 50 miles a week, is not going to be well-being for somebody else. You know, it's it's really unique, as I say, it's it's finding that 
mm. that thing that can help you i think definitely it's, it's definitely individual and and i, and I see it was interesting because we just we've just came back from the Christmas break, but before the Christmas break, it's it's fascinating to look around the staff and just see who's who's just run themselves into the ground and and who's, yeah, who's taking, taking better care for them. And it's definitely I really enjoyed that you put that bit into your book because you're obviously talking about that you kind of went slowly through the the, the kind of aspects of the job and then you finish with bang what about you you need to take care of you and it's that idea of giving mm. yourself permission just to switch off and i loved how you put in things like mindfulness and meditation and all these things that just help us relax and help us get get into into a different kind of mind frame and and instead of marking books in the evening you should be doing things that that give you more energy that make you enjoy um kind of moving on uh, you've just finished writing a, a, a second book and uh, I for one I, I'm thoroughly excited to, to get my hands on that and, and, and read it um, oh thank you could you could you tell us uh, about this what is it about what does it contain and, and how does it differ from slow teaching oh good question um, well as, as you probably uh, deduced from my fairly terrible attempts to talk through a uh, on this uh, podcast, I'm, I'm a pretty introverted chap myself. You know, I'm much better in the uh, in the questioning uh, role rather than the talking role. And um, so I was, I guess, again, I was just really interested to think about how um, introverts and quieter people experience education. For me, I think a lot of what we do in, in education is sort of geared towards extroverts. So in the classroom, you know, we're ramping up the group work, we're ramping up lots of dialogue, lots of communication, lots of um, discussion, as I said. And then the teaching itself as a profession is often perceived to be quite an extroverted profession. Because as I say, we were performing um, all day endlessly. Um, and I think for quieter people, and that's quieter kind of um, students and it's quieter teachers, it can be really quite a difficult process and quite an exhausting process um, and I think you know there's, there's research to suggest that introverts, introverts kind of take up a, like a, about a third of society and I think it should be another arsenal of the teacher toolkit you know how do we make sure that quieter students in our classes are thriving and are not kind of the recipients of that um, you know that parents day where we say listen little Bobby's such a hard worker, he's great, but he's far too quiet. You know, that's, that seems to be the way in terms of, I've interviewed loads and loads of quiet students and quiet teachers for this, that quietness is perceived. And my kind of argument is that quiet is a, is a virtue and it should be perceived as a virtue in society. Um, particularly for adolescents, you know, they've, they've got the loudest and uh, kind of most um, forthright of lives. You know, they're on social media, it's endless. And I think, you know, the classroom should be a little bit of a space for quieter reflections. And so the book's in three parts. Uh, the first part is about kind of teaching quieter students and a kind of range of strategies and a range of concepts and ideas that will help them to feel um, valued and to help them to, to thrive in their learning. The second part is about quieter teachers and what we can learn from quieter teachers. You know, that old kind of adage that quiet teachers have quite classrooms is what I've tried to explore and unpick 
Um, and then the final section looks at sort of what I've called quiet skills. So things like metacognition. How do we really know what our young people are thinking about? And even sort of human qualities, like how do we inspire more empathy in our classrooms and help our students to, to listen better? Um, so I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed writing. I think I've learned a lot about kind of myself and about how to work with colleagues and with it. And hopefully, um, hopefully some people might find the ramblings useful. So thank you for being so positive about it anyway. <laughs> no, definitely. If it's, if it's anything like uh, uh, slow teaching, it will definitely resonate with me. And I think you... You summarised it a good bit there in terms of I th- I can I just picture myself with that parents' evening comment about young Jimmy being a, a nice lad but he's quiet. <laughs> I like him to offer more, but then again sh- we should be celebrating him for that his his quiet reflection and and he'll be the one that's taking it all in and then is able to perhaps write it all down and and give you quality, absolutely quality yeah. that way. He might not be able to be the most outspoken and, and have that presence but we should we should definitely be better at, at identifying the different types of people and and uh, celebrating that and uh, it was interesting you said about the, a third of us are, are introverted so there is mm-hmm. yeah there, there is work to do in, in recognizing that and i read a very interesting one a thing a, a while ago i don't know if it's true that like a social interaction for an introvert pe- introvert person is like an ex- extrovert person going for a 10 mile run you know in terms of the energy sap <laughs> yeah definitely can that's have. a good line mate i need to i need to take that for the book actually i need to, I need to add that in can i add that in as a special letter <laughs> <laughs> if you give me if you give me some credit for that that would be brilliant but you yeah, know it's uh, it's uh, it's a definite fa- fascinating thing you know and again uh, um i think think in, in my own life that um my my good lady claims that that she's an introvert, but in, and sometimes when we we go out with friends, she can come back exhausted, and whereas I'm full of energy, so there's there's definitely something in that. Um, just before oh, we <laughs> just before we we go on to to my final three um, questions that I have for you, um, could you um, perhaps share with with the listeners where they could can find your book, where they can pre-order it, and and so on. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, I'm on uh, Twitter, just as uh, at TeachGratitude1, uh, and then it's kind of published via John Cat uh, Educational. And um, so if you go on Amazon and just type in, uh, it's called A Quiet Education, um, you'll be able to get hold of it uh, there. So thank you. Perfect, thank you. And of course, if anyone hasn't read your first one, Slow Teaching, what, is that one still available to, to purchase? <laughs> Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I almost forgot about that one. Now, just moving on too quickly. Yeah. <laughs> slow teaching is still out out there. If, uh, if the slow ramblings are of interest, yeah, thank you. No worries. No worries. Got to do that. So, um, I've got final my final three. Um, I'm now starting to call them questions that I've that I've asked everyone that's been on my podcast so far. So, if you're up for for answering them, are, we, are you happy to proceed? Oh, of course, yeah, 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 of course. But uh, my first one is, um, what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Oh, good question. Um, I think, you know, I only kind of joined Twitter about three years ago, uh, but before then I'd always kind of followed um, Alex Quigley's blog, um, and I think that, uh, that as an English teacher as well, you know, all the way through, my teaching career, because he's been blogging for about 10 years now, uh, that was, that's had a huge impact in terms of 
in my own classroom practice. Uh, and I think a confident teacher, which is one of the first education books I, I read uh, before I got rather obsessed with them and read hundreds of them, uh, that's a brilliant book. And then really, really worth getting hold of just in terms of looking at, you know, where can we find confidence in the classroom and what should we be looking at uh, in terms of exploring. So that's a great book. I definitely recommend that. No worries. Thank you very much. Um... My next one, if you could give uh, only one bit of advice to, to a teacher, old, young, new, or aspiring teacher, what would that be? Well, it's going to have to be something slow, isn't it? Otherwise, <laughs> I'm going to come across as a complete hypocrite. So my one piece of advice would be to um, allow yourself at the end of every day to slow down for five minutes and write down or just even think or visualize one or two wonderful things that have happened through the course of the day because they will be there even in the dark even in your darkest moments of despair there will be things that have kind of touched you emotionally it might be a student's answer it might be a moment in the lesson where you were absolutely flying and it might be an interaction with a colleague that's picked you up and um, but schools are such wonderfully interpersonally um rich environments that leaving that bit of time at the end of the day to, to remember that rather than focusing on the negatives can and um, I think can sustain us as as teachers. No, brilliant. That's a that's a brilliant one in terms of it's been in, interpersonally rich, and I think rec the being able to finish a day and just recognise the all the positive interactions because we do have a negativity bias and, and I really I really love that one. Thank mm -hmm. you very much. Um, finally, well, one thing that, that, in, that interests me, um, there's a lot of things that I think that just get in the way of, of good teachers doing what they just love to do and that is teach young people. Um, so what do you think most gets in the way of great teaching? Oh, that's a good final question. What gets in the way of great teaching? Um, I'm going to say overcomplicating teaching and trying to throw in, trying to shoehorn in too much into lessons. And I think sometimes we need to be brave and we need to simplify things and recognise that what young people really want is not a you know, a 50-slide PowerPoint. What they want is somebody human in front of them who is profoundly passionate about the subject and working with them. And if you've got that, then you are um, at the next stop to great and wonderful teaching. So not trying to overcomplicate lessons. Instead, slowing things down and uh, using, using our kind of human elements of teaching a little bit more. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. If you want to find out more about what was discussed today, please head over to my website, becomingeducated.co.uk. And finally, if you haven't done so already, I would really love it if you were to subscribe to the podcast. That way, all future episodes will be downloaded directly into your feed. And before you go, please always remember to teach with joy.